Welcome to the Share Your Story podcast. A space where you can hear people's true stories to inspire us to live better ones ourselves. share your story podcast we decided a couple of months ago that we'd start sharing our stories in series this first series is for mental health awareness week we'll be uploading a different story every day this week it's been an amazing month recording these stories and meeting these individuals i'll be honest it's taking up every part of my mind while putting this together the people we've recorded with us are so incredibly brave and open and i can't wait to introduce you to them But I would also like to mention the people who haven't managed to or couldn't record their stories because even sharing those emails, messages and phone calls with them was so eye-opening and inspiring. We all want to have good mental health and yet we live in a society that is obsessed with physical health and focuses mainly on that. But so many of us experience different struggles and variable mental health. So we have invited these speakers to share their stories around the topic. Throughout the week we're going to discuss around mental health. But for this episode, I'm going to introduce you straight to our first speaker. Her name is Caroline Jones, an amazing woman who's written a book about her experience with bulimia. As well as talking about her illness, she also talks around this subject. I met Caroline at her house and she is so incredibly warm and welcoming. The work she's gone on to do in this area is very inspiring. We are very excited to welcome her back to share your story for our event in Brighton on Wednesday this week. There was one more thing I wanted to mention. We have in no way covered all the possibilities of stories within this subject. Share Your Stories Network only covers a very small area of people, so we need your help to represent people from all backgrounds to tell their stories and experiences. Please do get in touch if you want to get involved. Also, you can use hashtag stories for mental health if you'd like to share your story on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. My name is Caroline Jones and I live in Brighton. But I grew up in East Africa. I was born in Ethiopia and I lived all over East Africa following my father, who worked for the United Nations World Food Programme, which is a food aid organization. And thanks to his work, we lived in some of the most beautiful countries on the planet, Ethiopia, Kenya, Uganda, Sudan. and. Um, we had a, an amazing childhood, um, quite a wild childhood in some beautiful wild places, so quite a free sort of childhood. Um, and we're a very united family. I have a brother and a sister, and we, we were a unit because we moved together. Um, there was abundant love from my mum and dad when we were little Um, and really we had an adventure filled and very happy time Um, at the age of 17 I came or sorry 
at the age of nearly 17, I arrived in England for the first time and I went to a boarding school, sixth form, for two years. And it was my first experience of England, other than we used to come here a couple of weeks every summer for our summer holidays. And that was probably the, f the first, what I would call a rupture in what had previously been a, a, a kind of effortlessly happy childhood, really. I mean, if I look closely, there were probably um, there were probably little things that happened before then. We the very last country we lived in was Pakistan, which is the only country we lived in outside of um, Africa. And while we were there, the school that my sister and I were going to, my brother by this time was at um, school in England, um, was closed down for security reasons at the start of the first Gulf War. So we, as, w with hindsight, that was probably quite a traumatic time, although we dealt with it, and my parents dealt with it with absolutely no, no fear, no worries. We just got on with it, and we went to a different school. Um, but we did lose most of our friends who were all evacuated um, at that time. Um, so I guess there was a little bit of instability, if I look back on it, before I arrived in England. I arrived in England at this boarding school and at the same time my parents left Pakistan and moved back to Ethiopia, which was the country of my birth. So I think two fairly significant things happened simultaneously. One, I left my family and I left where I had grown up and known all my life. And two, my family left the home that I knew, which was then Pakistan, and moved back to East Africa. Um, to a country that I didn't really know because I, I left Ethiopia when I was a chi young child. Um, so that was the first rupture, I would say. Um, and the disorder that I then developed was bulimia, which is an eating disorder um, where you acquire vast amounts of food um, and, and then throw it up. And it all takes place in private and it's a very secretive illness and it's really a horrendously awful thing to suffer from. Um, and the beginnings of it um, were at this boarding school. And I think, as far as you can ever really understand these things, but I think it started to cover over feelings of boredom, um, dislocation, uh, culture shock, um, unhappiness, depression, probably actually depression, although I wouldn't have recognized it as that at the time. So it, beca it began as a habit, a girl in my boarding house um, showed me how to do it. Uh, it. It all took place in a culture where um, Everyone gained weight when we first arrived at boarding school. Because <laughs> we'd, all, we'd all gorge on food in our break times. And so we all got a bit chubby. It's kind of natural at that age anyway to get to be a bit chubby, I think. Um, and I didn't like it. Um, and I didn't want to be fatter than I was used to. And I think that, that, that culture 
that we live in where thinness is seen as a kind of exalted state combined with um, the emptiness that I felt at arriving in England and actually just not having a clue how to deal with those feelings um, probably provided fertile ground for the beginnings of that habit. And it really was just a habit in the beginning. I would sort of sneak off and buy food and, and throw it up in private, um, never revealing that to anyone. Um, so I think the reason why I turned to that particular coping mechanism was a combination of a complex interplay of internal and external factors. So I think the external factors were my arrival at boarding school, feelings of unhappiness, dislocation, um, confusion, depression, probably. Um, lacking sunlight, I think probably had quite a lot to do with it. Um, combined with an internal landscape of not being someone who was able to express difficult emotion at all. And that, I think, came from a family culture of positivity. We've always been a really positive family. We've always lived in countries where everyone around us was so much worse off than us. So the idea of sort of feeling sorry for yourself or indulging, in inverted commas, in, in sort of self-pity or any sort of negative emotion, there was just never really room for that. And my parents were just positive, liberal, adventurous, um, coping types who, um, that just wasn't part of what we did as a family. Um, we, I'm not apportioning any blame or responsibility at all. Um, and I think I was quite a thin-skinned child, probably, who just had no idea how to deal with difficulty really when it comes down to it and so I think I channeled that through eating and throwing up because I didn't want to get fat there certainly wasn't any support at boarding school for um, these I mean when I think about it now all these kids had come from the other all ends of the world it was well known for, it did the international baccalaureate at my boarding school so it attracted kids from all over the world and actually when I think back on it there was nothing there was no support whatsoever for that transition which just seems crazy when you think about it doesn't it, it really does seem crazy so I know though I don't think there was any support for that transition from family to boarding school from East Africa to boarding school in Kent but to be balanced about it even if there had been the offer of support I wonder whether I would have been capable of taking it up I don't know I think schools nowadays are probably a lot better equipped I hope so anyway I really hope so to deal with all aspects of the human being not just the high achieving but all aspects of the human experience. I hope that that's the case. Um, so I think that did play a part. 
So at first it was a habit um, and I felt as though it was within my control. I knew it was, um, I knew it was a bad thing to do and I was so ashamed of it, particularly given the countries we lived in where there were people with not enough food. You know, the idea of that wastefulness was distressing. Um, but I kind of ticked along and I got a great good grade at IB and I got into Oxford and then I took a gap year and traveled around the um, Asian subcontinent with a boyfriend and had a great time and felt as though I'd left it behind me and then I came back to England and I went to Oxford and I was there for four years and what had begun as a fairly innocent habit turned into a fully blown illness at Oxford and um, it was there that it transitioned from something that felt as though it was in my control to uh, something that actually dominated me, really. Um, it happened several times a week, uh, always in secret. So ultimately I was living a double life. On the one hand, I was leading a kind of normal student life with boyfriends and essay deadlines and played sport for the university and had friends and kind of got on with it on one level although I always struggled holding it all together um, but you probably wouldn't have known that I was struggling and then with this undercurrent of um, this almost like an alter ego uh, where um, I was carrying out this just really distressing behavior, exhausting, distressing, time-consuming, devastating, really. Um, but again, I I got through it. I, it just it amazes me looking back on it that how I managed to how I managed to carry on for so long. And then in my third year. I started stealing food to feed the habit, basically. And I didn't have to steal food because I was on an allowance, um, small, and probably most of it went on buying food, to be honest. Um, but I didn't have to do it. And to this day, it intrigues me as to what made me, propelled me to do that. Um, and I was caught and arrested. And that was probably the beginning of the end, if I can pick out a narrative of the illness. That was probably the beginning of actually quite a long process of accepting that this was beyond me, that this was something um, that had become really serious. I think it was probably the first wake-up call, if you want. Or actually, no, it wasn't a wake-up call. It was just the first rock bottom. It was the first rock bottom where I found myself in a cell, um, thinking I was going to be sent down from university, wondering how I was going to tell my parents, thinking that everyone was going to find out about me without it being my choice to reveal that side of me um, and I 
I resolved then that I would go back to Africa and I would tell my family and I would start again with a clean slate. Um, as it was, I wasn't kicked out of Oxford. I finished my degree. I had to explain to the president of my college <laughs> what had happened, which was probably one of the most humiliating experiences of my life at that point. <laughs> but I finished, I got my degree, I went back to Africa, and I, told, I did tell my family. I kind of got away with it uh, on one level because I, I kind of lied my way out of that situation. Um, you do become a practiced dissembler um, when you have that sort of addiction because you have to come up with stories that explain where you've been for hours and hours of time um, and why you drop out of stuff and why you don't show up to stuff. And I moved back to Africa after finishing my degree and I started working for a newspaper living at my parents' home in Kampala in Uganda. And one afternoon, I, all the family was at home. My brother, William, was working in Kenya on a game reserve, but he happened to be there at the time. My sister, Anna, was, um, was um, also in Kampala, living in Kampala at the time. So we were all there, and I, I, I said to my dad, who I saw in the hallway, can you get everyone to come to the room because I need to talk to you about something. And they all came, and they all sat down in my bedroom, and it was the hardest thing I had ever done because by then it had been going on for years, years and years and years. And I felt as though I wasn't the person that they thought I was. I was so busy all those years keeping up the pretense of being um, this successful, energetic woman when actually underpinning it and underlying it was this massive lie, a massive lie and such a difficult one to comprehend, um, particularly within our family, uh, the understandings of our family and the way we did things and the way we approached life and the places we lived in. It's really hard to understand that sort of behavior. So I finally told them and again, I think that was a big step on the journey towards starting recovery, but it would still be years before I actually began the journey to recovery. Because I went back to England after about a year of living in Uganda, I went back to England, I started working in London, making documentaries. And, um, and again, I had what appeared to be a normal life with a job and renting various flats all over London. I was quite itinerant in London. I never liked it, actually, really. Uh, it was too big, and I was, always felt totally lost. But I was kind of working my way gradually and very slowly up in the world of documentary films um, and ended up working for the BBC, where I worked for about five or six years. And... Um, but all that time, it carried on. And whenever my family asked me about it, I fudged the truth and I told them that it was going in the right direction and I told them I was working on it and I told them... When actually, it just carried on just the same. And then a really uh, 
lucky thing happened, which is that I had been to a party in King's Cross and I missed the last bus home. And things were bad, you know, things were really bad. Um, and, and actually, I should say that alongside this um, eating disorder, it came hand in hand with depression. I think I was so devastated by the um, behavior that I carried out that it fueled a concurrent depression. The thing about bulimia is it's such a, it is by its nature secret. And so you carry it totally alone. Um, and that's hard. That's really hard when it takes, I mean, literally hours and hours and days of your time in a week. Um, and I always found ways of carrying it out, no matter what situation I was in. I found ways of kind of opting out of real life and doing that instead. Um, so by the time I had this, I was waiting at the bus stop, middle of the night, um, in the rain. And I missed the bus. The bus pulled up and then pulled away without opening its doors. And I had a kind of breakdown. I, I think I finally, <laughs> I finally uh, cracked. And I found myself hysterical. I mean, such a small thing, but I was hysterical. I was absolutely screaming shouting, hysterical, like a crazy person standing on the pavement, surrounded by people trying to get the bus home. And um, I managed to hail a cab and I got into the back of the taxi. And then I heard this little disembodied voice coming from my bag. And I looked at my phone and it was my sister. And Somehow, in all of that chaos, her number had dialed in my bag and she'd heard it all. So she'd heard me losing control, probably for the first time ever, to that degree. They had, my family had witnessed periods of depression through my life, connected to my eating disorder, but they didn't know that. Um, and so I knew I was accountable. I couldn't just push this one under the carpet and lie my way out of it because I'd been overheard. Um, and Anna was on the phone and she was worried and wanting to know what was happening. And I told her I'd call her back in the morning. And I did. I, I called her and I called my parents the next morning and I said, I just can't do it anymore. I can't do it on my own. I need help. Uh, and they did. I mean, they were amazing. They helped. Um, after that, it was actually my dad who found an eating disorders unit on the internet and gave me the number and said, this is what we need to do. Um, so the, he actually came up to London the next morning and collected me and took me home. 
I have incredibly kind and supportive parents. And we, so we found this unit. I called them up. I had an appointment a week later. It was an eating disorders unit in South London. And that was the beginning of the end. I, you know, I finally got help in the right place. And I also finally understood, but this was through therapy, so actually I'm jumping ahead. So um, a week later, I had my first appointment. My sister came with me and we met the consultant at this eating disorders unit who recommended that I meet one of his therapists called Penny. And then a week after that, I just turned 30, by the way. So it started when I was 17. It was a very long time. Um, I met Penny, a specialist in eating disorders. And I went to see her every week for a year as an outpatient for an hour. And I just told my work, this is something I have to do. And I told my boss, I explained what it was and she was incredibly supportive. Um, so I'd leave early on a Monday, I'd leave at four, make my way down to South London. I was working at the BBC in West London and I did it for almost a year. And after 14 years of privately battling this horrendous illness, it was, it was broken within six or seven months. But that process began immediately. That process of recovery started straight away. So a week after I told them about my illness in Kampala, my dad, on a long journey across the country from where he had been working in a refugee camp in the north, devised a formula for leading a, uh, for a healthy life, for a happy, healthy life. And he came back and announced this formula and it's become a kind of family mantra. We, we, we also laugh about it, I have to say now. <laughs> but it has become a, he's a wise man, my dad. You know, he, he, he came up with this formula, which was Defoe, um, but there was one letter, it was an acronym, and each of the letters of Defoe stand for an area in your life that you have to pay attention to and make sure works well in order to be balanced and happy. And the D is diet, E is exercise, F is friends, O is being organized, and the last E is environment, living in an environment that suits your temperament. And all of those are incredibly important factors in anyone's life. But the one he couldn't fit in was the B for be positive. <laughs> so the formula is be positive to Defoe. And the be positive part of it is the most important part of it. And I mean, that was, that kind of sums up in a way, my family's approach to life, which is practical and positive and healthy. Um, but it's peripheral when you have a mental illness. All of that's peripheral if you have a mental illness because 
certain kinds of conditions preclude being positive. You can't be positive. If you're, for example, mired in a dark depression or in the grip of an eating disorder. Do you know what I mean? To try to take that on when you're not well and when you're when you're mentally ill, it, it can make it worse. Because on top of feeling like a massive failure, because you're struggling with this disease, you feel like a failure because you can't be positive either. So it's a really tricky one. I know how important and crucial those factors are in a healthy life. But sometimes it just takes a deeper and more profound look at a condition to make it better. And I think the fact that I started so young um, meant that I never developed coping mechanisms. I never, you know, it went on for years and years and years. And any time I was in a situation that I didn't want to be in, that was what I turned to, to cover over any discomfort, depression, loneliness, fear, feeling sidelined, whatever it was, it was as though there was a neurological pathway that led straight to, well, this is what I need to do, I need to eat. Instead of dealing with it, looking at it, understanding it in any way. And so I suppose that sort of practical approach, again, was actually not very helpful <laughs> at the time, although I'm, I'm so grateful for the, for the um, intention behind it. What helped me was having the incredible good fortune to meet this phenomenal eating disorders specialist who showed me that every episode came from somewhere and that somewhere was always outside of myself. It wasn't me that was broken intrinsically broken. It was always a response to a trigger in the external environment. Always that behavior always was a response to any of those emotions. Yeah, so after the year of um, therapy, the tail end of it was actually very persistent. Um, and repeatedly I would find myself wanting to go in that direction under any stress, if I was under stress, or that was just the thing that automatically, impulsively came into my head. And then eventually that died away as well. So it took vigilance, I mean, even after that year was over, it took a good few years after that of having to be vigilant and, and actually all of those, what I call peripheral things, exercising and diet, that's when that became incredibly important, was once I'd already broken the back of that psychological disorder, then I knew that if I work hard to make sure that all these other things are in place and I'm conscious that I'm in an environment that works for me and that I'm happy, I definitely think I am someone who is vulnerable to dark clouds. But funnily enough, as I get older, they're fewer and f further between. And I think also, 
my, I know myself so well now that one, I see it coming and two, I know how to press my own reset button in a way that I never knew how to do before or was mature enough to actually just do it. So for me now, um, if I see it coming, it's usually a warning signal to me that something's wrong, actually. Instead of freaking out and seeing it as another depressive episode is coming to swallow me, I see it as a little bit of an alarm system to something isn't working, there's something, something obviously repetitive repetitively isn't working in my environment and try to be aware of what that might be and change it and two I know that if it's the summer I'm in the sea and I'm swimming out to the yellow boys and by the time I get back to shore I feel like a different person I know that there are methods or a long walk or preferably a long walk and a chat with a close friend or my husband or and I feel it lifting again so I'm, I'm less vulnerable to being overwhelmed by it than I was but it still recurs at the end of the year of therapy I met my now husband um, and it's no coincidence that I met him when I was conquering this illness because previously I just wouldn't have been capable of having a healthy relationship probably. So I met Mike and within a year we were living together. Uh, within another year we were married. We moved to America for a while. We had two beautiful kids who are now seven and four. And we've had a massive adventure. We've had a really wonderful time together. And I love my family. Love my family and I love being a mum. And when my first child, George, was born, who is now seven, um, I decided that I wanted to write the story of that journey through that particular illness. So I started it when he was a couple of months old. And I worked on it in tiny little pockets of time <laughs> in between all the exhaustion. Um, and then Polly, my second one, came along a couple of years later and I carried on writing it. And um, it was published last year in hardback and published just a few weeks ago in paperback. Um, and that whole process has been absolutely fantastic. I've loved every minute of writing it and I loved every minute of it being published. And it's out in the world and it got fantastic reviews and great publicity for which I'm incredibly grateful. Um, and more than that, it was, aside from the fact that I just loved writing it, um, it definitely finished a chapter. Writing the end really was the end of a very, very, very long phase of my life, even though the illness had finished long before I started writing the book. Well, not long before, a short time before I started writing the book. 
Um, I feel so liberated. I feel so liberated having chronicled it and having had the privilege of chronicling it and sitting down and thinking it through, spending time piecing it all together and thinking it through and turning something that was so dark into something that has brought me so much joy and is so positive. Um, so the book is published. It's called The Spaces In Between. <laughs> and, um, and now that that's finished, I'm, I want to talk at schools. So my plan is to talk to as many schools as I can in the next year, mainly sixth form, possibly a bit younger, and tell them about my journey, tell them my story. Because I know that if I'd heard that when I was 17, it really could have changed the path of my life. I don't regret the path that I took because I wouldn't be here now and so much joy ultimately has come out of that dark period. But I wouldn't wish that on anyone. On any boy or girl, I would not wish that journey. Um, and I do believe that there are lessons you can learn. I hope so. That there are lessons you can learn at the age of 16 or 15 or 17 that equip you for dealing with difficult situations and difficult emotions. Um, and if I can help, then I'd love to. Oh, crying again. <laughs> difficult emotion and difficult situations are not by choice and they're going to recur through your life, whether you like it or not. But what is so empowering is the idea that your response to that emotion is by choice. You can choose what you do with that situation or that emotion. You don't have to channel it through an addiction or an eating disorder or bury your head in the sand. There are other much healthier and better ways of facing up to and responding to difficult emotion. And difficult emotion also isn't a weakness. It's just part of human nature and it's actually what makes us interesting and that vulnerability I always find a really interesting characteristic in my friends. It's not a weakness, it's just a part of human nature. And I suppose if you can embrace it and not repress it, which is what I always try to do, it will make you a much stronger person in the end. I think what's interesting is that I rarely come across people who really, truly are willing to be honest about their struggles. Do you find that? I, I mean, people are, people are very happy to talk about their achievements and their successes and how incredibly busy and 
you know, energetic they are. But it's still quite rare, I think, to come across people who are really willing to articulate the darker side of things and the struggles. I think it can only be a good thing because seeing yourself in someone else's story can be such a powerful thing. Recognizing your story in someone else's can be such a powerful thing. And I think setting it down as a story, turning it into a narrative, not only helps you to understand it yourself, and helps everyone else to understand it, but there is something really powerful and liberating and cathartic in the process of turning an experience into a story. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to get in touch or find out more, head to Facebook or Instagram at shareyourstory.space or on Twitter at underscore SYSpace. You can subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, iTunes or across various other platforms. And you can also get in touch with us or learn more about us through our website www.shareyourstory.space Thank you again. Bye bye.